Good morning, Nick. There we go. Now, my good morning, church. My name is Jordan. I'm the pastor here. If I haven't met you yet, I'd love to do that at some point. In fact, I'd love to do that next Sunday at our first step lunch. Chad mentioned that earlier, but each week as we get into our sermon, actually, it's just relevant because each month when we gather for that, um, and for some of you who have been around a while, you may have come and it may have been called uh, Newcomer Lunch or Connect Lunch or whatever, but it's, it's always the same uh, idea. It's sort of uh, what I call first date information about our church. If you're wanting to know a little bit more about who we are and you know what we value and, and, and our history, uh, that's where we share that. And then uh, also kind of on-ramps and, and, and next steps to get plugged in. And so we'd love to have you at that. But each time we gather for that, I tell the same story. I tell the story about why I came to the journey, uh, which the journey in St. Louis, but why I came to be a part of the Journey Church, uh, I think it's over 13 years ago now, and why I helped launch this one and why I am the pastor here today is because um, our church, I, I believe, uh, not perfect, but uh, our church believes in valuing both grace and truth. And as a young pastor, as a young youth pastor and a guy full of angst and zeal, I was seeing churches that seemed to major on one or the other, seeing churches that seemed to be really big on preaching truth and doctrine, and they didn't seem to care about the world out there that was dying and going to hell, and they really uh, didn't, didn't seem to be, you know, trying to reach them at all, or really familiar with grace at all, uh, seemed to be pretty self-righteous, and that frustrated me. Uh, but then I saw other churches that seemed to take the other route and, and just hold to, to grace, and they weren't really worried about truth, right? They were, they were really all about um, God's love as they defined it, was really more like tolerance and really more like God, you know, accepts all things and all people and all behaviors that come with that. And, and there seemed to be this majoring on one side or the other, and I heard about this church that, that seemed to be trying to do both. Again, not that we're perfect, but a church that was willing to preach doctrine and hard truths and hold that with a closed hand. We won't apologize about what God's word says. We will do our best to unpack it and apply it to our context. And at the same time, are trying to reach the people and the world around us. That is what drew me to the Journey Church 13 years ago. That is still what excites me about being the pastor at the Journey Church. And again, not that we are perfect, not that, I, not that I'm perfect. We're going to mess this up. We're going to skew those lines ourselves. But that is what makes me excited about being the pastor here and, and reaching people with the good news of the gospel. Because here's the deal. Truth without grace breeds a self-righteous legalism that poisons the church and pushes the world away from Christ. Okay? When you have truth that is without grace, it breeds a self-righteous legalism that poisons the church and pushes the world away. Grace without truth breeds moral indifference, and it keeps people from seeing their need for Christ. Uh, that came from a book that is on your digital bulletin as a recommendation for a resource. It's a small book by Randy Alcorn, The Grace and Truth Paradox. I highly recommend that you uh, grab a copy. It's an easy read, but it's, it's, it's incredible. And what we're going to see is that John is going to introduce, uh, he's continuing to introduce Jesus. We're all in the, we're in the prologue still of this gospel. The action's going to pick up uh, here shortly. And I hope that uh, we've made some jokes about going slow. We've made some jokes about how long it, we're going to be in, in John. And, and, uh, but I hope we've also made uh, an impression as we've started the book of John. I hope that we've made an impression on you about how you should approach the Word of God, that sometimes, indeed, reading in volume is the best approach, and it is, there's value to that, but there are times whenever sitting in a passage and mining it for all of its beautiful treasure 
of what God has for us. And we want to make sure we're modeling that for you and teaching you. I hope that you're, you're implicitly learning kind of how to study the Bible, how to get all that is in there. Um, and we haven't even mined all of those depths. We've moved, we could have gone slower. We could have taken different focuses and different things. This is a, uh, an incredibly rich um, passage as John starts his gospel, but I hope that we've made an impression on you to, to study, to, uh, to take a, a book of the Bible and, and not just blow through it to say that you've read it, but to sit in it, to ask God to speak to you, to see the beauty and the treasures that are in there. Get you a good study Bible if you, if you don't have one. Um, there's a lot out there. Um, uh, get access, if you'd rather not do that, if you do everything digitally, uh, get access to some software. I recommend ESV.org. You can, I think, pay 40 bucks a year, and you can get several commentaries, the ESV Study Bible, all those notes, plus some commentaries on ESV.org. It's one of my favorite resources. So do that and spend some time just setting in the Word. Don't just wait for, for Sunday mornings. We hope that you come prepared and engaged here, but we want to encourage you to be a people who are, who are studying the Word on our own. So as we are sitting in this, this is the prologue still. This is John setting up the rest of this gospel. He's going to introduce to us today um, two paradoxes. Paradox is an apparent contradiction, two things that don't seem to go together. And John is going to introduce for us two paradoxes. The first being uh, the word, the eternal word of God, eternal Jesus, creator of the world, no beginning, no end, becoming flesh. The eternal creator putting on mortal, perishable flesh. And the second paradox is that as he does that, he comes full of both grace and truth. Both of those things are hard to wrap our minds around. We don't seem to have enough space in our mind to hold on to both at the same time. In that book, Alcorn compares it to his dog that tries to hold on to two balls at the same time or try, wants to have both balls. And inevitably, when he reaches for one, he drops the other. And, and we seem to do that. as what I was describing as what I had witnessed from a lot of churches um, before. Is we seem to be able to hold on to one a little more firmly than the other and and though we might know the other exists, we're sort of more comfortable with one or the other grace and truth. And Jesus, as he comes to display for us, this is what John is saying. This is God on display. This is how he comes, full of both grace and truth. So I, we're going to introduce this idea today, but I don't want us to sit with it and process it today and then put it away because Again, this is a prologue, so he's actually setting us up with a lens with which we should see and read and enjoy and be transformed by the rest of the book. Again, you know some of the stories that are coming in John. Jesus with the woman at the well, John chapter 4. Jesus with the woman caught in adultery, John chapter 8. Jesus washing his disciples' feet, John chapter 13. Jesus restoring Peter, John 21. Uh, all of these stories are, are what's coming, and John wants us to, to be informed as we go into this that Jesus is displaying for us the nature of God, and that our God is a God of grace and truth. So, we're going to introduce the idea today, but I want you to know that this is, we're going to come back to this, so it's not like it's to get this book and read it or to study further is not just to get more out of this sermon. It's really to set us up as we sit and walk through the rest of this book. So let's jump in. Uh, today we see in verse 14 that we have the word is brought back. The, the word logos, 
Uh, Logos is translated to the word. We unpacked that the first couple of weeks, and it's the first time we've seen it since verse 1, and it will be the last time that we see that word, the Logos, in this gospel. doesn't appear again. But in that, John is reminding us that everything that has been said about this Jesus, about this Logos, is, is true, and he's pulling all of that back in in reference to be in, in, included in what is about to be explained. Okay, so the eternal nature of the Logos, of the Word, the creative power of the Word, the, um, the incredible glory that holds there, the, the, the divinity of the Word, that he, was, that he was God, that he was with God, that he's not... Like he was not created, right? By him, all things that were created were created. Therefore, he was not a created being. He was there in the beginning. He was responsible for creating all. This is, is who John is reminding us. Hey, the word should have all of that coming back to us as we um, now step in and talk about the incarnation. As we talk about this word becoming flesh. So we talked earlier uh, when we started the book, that the word logos would pull for different readers, uh, for different hearers in this context, different meanings. The Greeks would see it as the ultimate reality, the thing that holds all things together. The, the Jews would, would see it, know it, refer to it. It would draw for them the word, the very power of God, the creative nature uh, that, that accomplishes God's purposes. It would be both of that. But whatever started the reader um, Whatever, you know, that word started them thinking about now has to be um, subsequent or subservient to this idea that it is now becoming flesh. The word is ultimately about God's self-disclosure, and it is now becoming disclosed in the flesh. We've quoted the verse from Hebrews chapter 1 a few times uh, as we've started this, but it says long ago, in many ways and many times, God spoke to us through the prophets, right, through his word. But now he's speaking to us through his son. He's revealing himself through his son. So, verse 14, the word, all of that included, became flesh and dwelt among us. There's a lot to unpack here, but this word dwelt among us uh, could literally be rendered pitched his tent or tabernacled with. This is referring back to what the, the Israelites would have known, the Jewish people would have known about their history of, of God um, dwelling in the tabernacle with them as they moved throughout the desert in the Exodus story, as they moved toward the promised land. With them, they always brought this portable tent, this tabernacle that they would set up that would be the place that God would, would dwell with them, come and speak to them, receive their sacrifices. Uh, the tabernacle is, has been a hugely central piece of the redemptive history of God's people. This is where God came and dwelt. And, and so for John to say the word has now became flesh and is tabernacling with us, dwelling with us, would be a staggering statement. For the, for the Jewish reader or even for the Greek reader to be understanding, oh, the ultimate reality is not a force out there. It's a person, and that person has now entered into the world. So, dwelt with us. He didn't just become a man and leave behind his godness. 
Okay, this is so important for us. The the word was with God and the word was God and now the word is becoming man. This is why the angel says in Matthew chapter one, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So the logos, the creator who was with God and was God, all things were created by him. He wasn't created, he's eternal. He is stepping into the world. So, this, this reality of Jesus becoming flesh, this is, this is less about the incarnation that, that God is, is coming into the world. That's already been uh, unpacked for us in verse 9, but this is really more about the tension of what, how he is coming into the world with his godness intact and putting on it flesh. I joked a few weeks ago that when we were on our mission trip uh, hanging out with some students, one of the kids said, this is God wrapping himself in meat, right? It's not untrue. And maybe it'll be helpful for you as you remember it. It's a little bit weird. It's a teenage boy way of looking at things, right? Um, This is God adding to his nature, his divinity, the nature of man. He's becoming man. So this isn't one member of the Trinity leaving behind the godness to take up humanness, okay? This is the logos. This is the unique one. Okay, this is what he means by, uh, by saying the only son from the father. This is, this is, that could be translated, some of your, your translations might say the only begotten son. That's not begotten in the sense of being born. It's begotten in the sense of it's from the same likeness. We've covered the eternal sonship of Jesus in a, in a previous sermon, so I'm not going to unpack that. It's a, it's, a, it's a big doctrine, but it's, a, it's an important one that Jesus was not created Right? God didn't just decide he needed someone to accomplish this mission of salvation, so he generated Jesus to go and do it. No, Jesus was with God in the beginning, and that Jesus was God in the beginning. And Jesus is now becoming man. He's not leaving his divinity behind, but he is adding to it his now humanness, his flesh. So this, that word there, um, the only son, is really... Um, it's the same word that's used to describe Isaac as Abraham's legitimate, true, promised son as, as compared to Ishmael, which was the non-promised son that Isaac generated on his own. This is, this is distinguished as unique, promised, and, and the one uh, that was foretold, the one that would uh, indeed embody and carry out the promise. This is what is being communicated here when Jesus it says he's the only true one. It's, it's a uniqueness. It could be translated into unique one. This is him. This is that God, the very creator, coming into the world. His godness, his divinity still intact, adding to that nature, the nature of humanity. So he says the word became flesh. That word flesh is, the, is probably the harshest term that could be used for the body. It would be... Um, not like compared to human or man, which was a more common term. Flesh is, is not less than that. It's not, um, you know, less comprehensive in terms of referring to humanity, but it's more specific talking about the actual flesh, bones and blood and soul. In other words, a whole being. It's not a theopony, the, the way that Jesus would show up in the Old Testament. The angel of the Lord would show up and do things. And the angel of the Lord is believed by most theologians to be, in many instances, Jesus himself, pre-incarnate Jesus, showing up and, and, and accomplishing different works in 
the Old Testament, right? The, the one in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the one walking with the angels. Like this is, this is a common way for, for Jesus to show up to sort of cloak his divinity, be disguised, maybe more, not disguised, but, but cloaked more, uh, revealed more as an angel or as a different being. This is not what's happening here. This is an intentional, like John wants us to hear this word and go, no, he's talking about becoming a man, like actually, truly becoming a man. Flesh, bones, all of it. Again, paradox, eternal God, no beginning, no end. Taking on mortal, perishable flesh. And it's that 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 John wants us to think about. It's our flesh is most susceptible to cuts, bruises, decay, right? Disease. That's what John wants us to have in mind. It's that, the, the very reminder of our mortality. That's what Jesus steps into. That's what Jesus puts on. So it's, it's a potent term that, that John used on purpose to describe the humanity that Jesus is coming with. So the word hasn't changed. This is the eternal creator God taking on mortal perishable flesh. But the word hasn't changed, but he now exists in the flesh. And what does that do for us? It says that we have seen his glory. We have seen his glory. This is, he's going to begin drawing in these, these Old Testament. Uh, part of the gospel writers is always going to be connecting who Jesus is all the way back to who the Old Testament has been promising, all the way back to the redemptive work and the history of God's people moving toward this moment. So Jesus is the embodiment of God's glory, the same glory that Moses asked to see back in Exodus 34. If you remember that story, you remember uh, God, G- Moses asking to like, hey, will you show me your glory? So this is, this is what he's drawing on. Now, this is not merely a, a reference to, to physically seeing Jesus and uh, with your, your physical eyes, though it's not less than that, right? It certainly has that in view, that, that people saw Jesus. They saw God on display as they saw Jesus do all that he did. Now, he wasn't remarkable in the sense of uh, there wasn't anything remarkable about his physical nature that, would, that drew people to him. He wasn't somebody who stood out as, oh my gosh, just drew a crowd because of his handsomeness or because of his muscles or because of, you know, uh, whatever. That wasn't who Jesus was, but he did incredible things that did indeed draw a lot of eyes that saw him, but a lot of those eyes that saw him do incredible things didn't see him as the, as the Savior, didn't see him in a way that led to them transforming their lives and to surrender to Jesus, did it? Chad walked us through that last week. But there's, there's, there's lots of people that see Lazarus get back out of the grave after four days where he stinks. And not all of those people bowed and surrendered their life to Jesus, did they? In fact, many of them went to the Pharisees went and reported that, hey, if you don't do something about this, this guy, people are going to start to believe in him, right? So, yes, it's, it's saying this Jesus, right, he's, he's reminding the way that Peter did at Pentecost, or wondering what is going on, what is this power that we're seeing? Peter goes, hey, you know that Jesus that we've known, that Jesus from Nazareth that you dismissed, that Jesus that we watched die on the cross? He was the promised one. He was the glory of God revealed in flesh. He was the incarnate presence of our divine Yahweh, like that was him. So it is that, but it's also 
it's also saying those of us who have seen him, those of us who have seen him in a way that, as Chad walked us through last week, caused us to be born again. Seeing his glory in a way that the scales fall off of our eyes, uh, seeing him in such a way that we realize, man, we are in need of a Savior, and that Jesus is our Savior. He's our only hope. He's the Lamb of God, beholding him and such. That's, this is what he's saying. This if we see him, if we've been, like verse 13 comes before this on purpose. He's saying that all who, who you know, do believe he's given the, the right to become children of God. And we now, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, with unveiled face are beholding the glory of God. And that leads to transformation, right? So there's all of this connection. Because back in the tabernacle, the presence of God was there. But could you just walk in and take a look? No, you die. Right? Only the high priest could go in after an incredibly detailed ritual of cleansing and repentance of his own sin so that he could go in and offer a sacrifice for the cleansing and the repentance of the people's sin. And even then, there's a, there's a veiled place. The presence of God is, is, is veiled in this, and, and this is all going to lead to Jesus on the cross, the, the veil being torn to where Paul can later say in 2 Corinthians 3, that now we with unveiled face behold the glory. But this is what John is bringing us into. The glory of God is now in flesh for us to see. This is what he's talking about. This is who our Jesus is. It's glory as of the only Son from the Father, and this again, okay, we, we, we pointed to the eternal sonship of Jesus um, previously, but again, this is not the Son of God in the sense of being created or born, but rather in it being exactly like the Father in all of his attributes, the sameness, the likeness with which your children bear who you are, your genetic resemblances, you see all that from the same material. This is what's being communicated here, like his Father in all of his attributes, um, having the father-son relationship is God the father, God the son. But, but the word only there is, is talking about one of a kind, right? Again, it's not begotten in the sense of being born, but rather in the sense of this is indeed God, God the father, and God the son. Okay, so, but, okay, so this is what John is building us to. The word became flesh. The tabernacle dwelt with us, among us, Emmanuel. We've seen his glory, glory as of the only son. This is actually God. This is actually the creator come from the father, commissioned by him, sent, dependent, completely in submission to him, but sent by the father. And how does he come? How does he come? This is where it's such incredible news because does he come full of wrath and execution? Right? Does he come full of, of judgment and wrath? No. Uh, one of the uh, most, the most famous verse of all time is John 3.16. Does anybody know John 3.17? You can flip over there. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now, would he have been justified to come into the world with judgment and wrath and execution? Absolutely he would have, right? No one could stand and say, no, 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 we don't deserve this. We would all be immediately guilty. There, there would be no mouth could open and raise a concern against the justice that Jesus would dole out if he just came as a judgment, as a judge and an executioner. 
absolutely would be fully just in that move, but he doesn't. Does he come with love and acceptance and tolerance and hugs? Again, we've got to be careful because does he come with, with judgment and wrath? He does. Does he come with love and acceptance? He does. But as we're going to see, we can't separate those two out. We can't separate our favorite attribute of Jesus and say, well, this is who we worship. Right? Y'all remember Talladega Night? You probably shouldn't. But if you do, there's a scene whenever they're praying at the dinner table, right? And they talk about which Jesus they like to pray to. And one likes to pray to little baby Jesus, right, in his diaper. And the other one likes to pray to, to Jesus in a tux because he likes to party. Or I don't even know. But it's, it's this idea that we, we all get our own images of who we're praying to and we kind of, or who we're, we're looking to. And we, we make a God in our own image, right, of what we prefer. And we hold that up. And, and if we define our life by that instead of defining our life by what the Bible says about who our Jesus is, then we're in danger. We're in grave danger. Because we cannot reduce or separate Jesus into one or the other of either grace or truth and, and define those on our own terms. That, in fact, to, to define, to behold the glory and the love of God, we need both of those things at the same time. He says that he came with grace and truth. This is so incredible. And, and notice, he's not just packing some of it, is he? He's not just got a little bit of grace and truth, a limited amount, right? VIP only, whoever gets in first, you'll get some grace and truth. No, what is he? He's full of it. He's full. It's what's oozing out of him. It is, it is with endless supply. He is full. His eternal being, this is who God is. He's going to say, no one's seen God, but he's been revealed. What do we see? God on display, grace and truth. Not one or the other, but fully grace and truth. When the world sees God, this is what he wants us to see, grace and truth. Verse 15, John pauses briefly to remind us of John's witness. And this is, this is again, it's in here. And a few weeks ago, whenever I said, hey, this seems to be um, out of place, I wasn't saying that to, to bring you know, criticism and say, you know, the Bible's wrong or John is wrong. I'm saying it, we should take note of it seeming out of place to see what John is trying to tell us. Right? I'm, not, I'm not saying that this is wrong. I'm saying that seems odd. We should ask ourselves, why is that there? Why is that there? Well, John is, is, is taking a pause here to say, listen, John the Baptist drew a crowd. John the Baptist was an incredible teacher. Jesus calls him the greatest man to ever walk. But John the Baptist bore witness about him. He wasn't him, but he, it was a witness. He was a, a voice crying out and saying, this is he of whom I said, he comes after me, but ranks before me. Why? Because he was before me. Now, if you know the story, John's six months older than Jesus. But John knows this Jesus is not just a man that was born that turned into a great man. John the Baptist knows this is the God-man. This is the eternal God who made us all that existed long before John was ever thought of. John the Baptist knows that before Abraham, Jesus was. 
John the Baptist knows that he doesn't, he can't even be worthy to untie the strap of this Jesus' sandal. Why? Because Jesus has existed from all time. He is above all things. He is for all things. He is, all things are made by him and for him and all things hold together. John realizes, oh my gosh, that's our God in flesh. So, and this is, this is incredible, right? This is, this is, John is saying, this is our God on display, right? We're going to come back to this idea of grace and truth, but, but I want to see where, where uh, the writer, John, is taking us next because he says, for, verse 16, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, but he has made him known. Now, again, I, I said this earlier. This is uh, John drawing back these incredibly popular and formative stories from the Old Testament. Any good Jew would have been told the story about Moses on the mountain, on the mountain asking to see God's glory. Right? If you've seen the, the, the movie The Nativity Story, they, they have a scene where um, one of the older women is teaching this story to the younger kiddos, right? That God's, God's um, presence didn't come, right, in the, in the, in the, in the thunder or in the, in the loud voice, right, or in the, in the wind. It, it came, what, in the still, small voice. This is the story that's being talked about. So it's a formative story. John is drawing our attention back there because this comes, uh, Exodus 34, 6, right? This is God being full of grace and truth. This is the embodiment, this is the fulfillment of who God said he was all the way back in Exodus 34 when he was talking to Moses. He says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, this is who I am. This is God naming himself. This is God defining himself. Again, church, we don't get to make a God in our own image. We don't get to make a God the way that we want him to be, but this is who our God says he is. And it's good news. He says, this is who I am. The Lord, the Lord, a God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And this came from Moses asking in Exodus 33, show me your glory. Like the next slide there, Justin, it says, Moses says, please show me your glory. And he says, I'll make all my goodness pass before you, and I'll proclaim to, to you my name, the Lord. And I, will sh- and I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious, and I'll show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he says, I'll proclaim my name, the Lord, Yahweh, this name should, should pack with it this idea, this truth, this reality that he is a God who is full of mercy and grace, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This, this is the Jew is so familiar with this revelation from God, the story of who our God is. And, and John is saying, Jesus is coming as that. God is now here on display. That merciful and gracious, slow to anger, that God is here. He's put on flesh. This is who our Jesus is. The covenant faithfulness and revelation through the law has has been not replaced. Right? Jesus says, I've not come to abolish the law. I've not come to get rid of it, but to do what? Fulfill it. Right? Jesus says, no, no, it's not that it's bad. Verse 17, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. Right? Um, the contrast is not that the Mosaic law was bad and that Jesus is good. Rather, 
Both the giving of the law and the coming of Jesus mark decisive events in the history of salvation. In the law, God is graciously revealing himself, his character, his righteous requirements to the nation of Israel. It's important, right? It has to be done so that we can see our need for salvation. It has to be done so that we know that our God is a righteous, holy God who we cannot stand in front of in our sin. So he reveals who he is through the law. Jesus, however, marked the final definitive revelation of God's grace and truth. He was superior to Abraham, to Jacob, to Moses. All of those stories are, are not to be held up in and of themselves, but rather to point us to Jesus. That's what the book of Hebrews does, is connects these dots, saying all these shadows, all these things pointing us towards something. That something was Jesus. So God is on display. This is his full revelation, transcending even the gift of the law, right? Fulfilling what God did in Exodus when he gave the law, the Ten Commandments, that revelation. This is what's happening. Verse 18 is staggering. No one's ever seen God the only God. Again, that has in mind that story because God says, well, Moses, I can't, I can't show you all of me or you'll die. But I, I'll, hide, I'll hide myself from you and you could see my back as I pass and I'll reveal to you my name, that I am the Lord, gracious, slow to angle, full of mercy. This is, this is that. No one's ever seen God, John says, the only God who's at the Father's side, he has made him known that he is Jesus. This is what we're dealing with. This is the prologue. This is what John wants us to know. He wants us to be staggered before we even enter into the stories of Jesus and what he's going to do. He wants us to be overwhelmed at this truth and this reality. So what does it mean that he's full of grace and truth? What does that actually look like? How, how is it that those two things together fully reveal to us the character of God and that if you major on one and forget the other, you've distorted it? How is it that that works? I, I want to read a, a few more quotes or at least one more quote here as we get going from um, Randy Alcorn's book that I held up earlier. It says, grace isn't about, lowering, isn't about God lowering his standards. It's about God fulfilling those standards through the substitutionary suffering of the standard setter. Christ went to the cross because he would not ignore the truths of his holiness and our sin. Grace never ignores or violates truth. Grace grave what truth demanded, the ultimate sacrifice for sins. You see, for, a God, for our God who has said, I require holiness of my people, and there will be no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. God who has set up the standard of sacrifice and judgment and, and, and his giving of the standard, he cannot just come along and say, you know what? No big deal. I love y'all, and I don't want anybody to suffer. I want us all to be together. So you know what? Universal pardon. To do that, isn't grace. It isn't grace. It's a, it's, a, it's a wicked distortion of grace that actually leads to its own incredibly harmful way of approaching the world, right? This, this 
what Alcorn has said, that, 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 that God isn't dismissing sin, isn't saying it's no big deal, but this is actually why it matters so much that Jesus was born, that Jesus went to the cross, is because it is this, in this act, that God is fulfilling the requirements of truth. There will be no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. The wages of sin is death. He's not passing on that. He's not saying that's no big a deal. It's culminating here. This is the connection of the two paradoxes that God had to become flesh, church. He had to become flesh so that grace and truth could be revealed. Do you realize that? He had to become flesh so that grace and truth could be fully revealed. He had to become flesh so that his flesh could be beaten. He had to become flesh so that his flesh could be whipped, bloodied, pierced through his fleshly hands, punctured through his fleshly side, taken from him the oxygen that filled his lungs and gave his body life to the point of death. See, salvation is absolutely free to us. It's an incredibly scandalous gift that is free to us, but it is not without cost, friends. It is not without cost, and Jesus paid that cost. This is how he's full of both grace and truth, because in his act of, of, of sacrifice, when, when he became, right, when the righteousness of God became our unrighteousness, and, and the great exchange, as Martin Luther says, right, in that moment, he is upholding both grace and truth. It is through his sacrifice that he upholds God's righteousness, that he upholds the standards of truth. And it is through his sacrifice that you and I are able to, as verse 16 says, receive what, church? Grace upon grace. It is through this that we get to hear that your sins be as scarlet. Come. Come. I'll make them white as snow. It is through this sacrifice, it is through this incredible culmination of grace and truth and Jesus on the cross that we're able to hear, hey, you come to me and your sins will be as removed as east is from the west. Never again to be held over you, never again to be in condemnation, never again to be your defining nature, rather the gift of God has become the righteousness of Christ. Why? Because he took our unrighteousness on his own. He lived the life that you and I could not live. And he died the death that you and I should have died. This is incredible. This is amazing grace. But you see, we can't we can't remove one or the other. Right? Because again, I'll look back to Alcorn. He says this. Truth without grace crushes people and ceases to be truth. Grace without truth deceives people and ceases to be grace. Truth without grace degenerates into judgmental legalism. Grace without truth degenerates into deceitful tolerance. You see, truth hates sin. And grace loves the sinner. You've heard that. Hate the sin, love the sinner. Nobody's done that like Jesus. Nobody has done that. Jesus is the embodiment of that. John is saying, 
This is our God. He has come to give us grace upon grace. And you say, well, how? Well, he says, through Jesus, through Jesus being your substitutionary atonement, your propitiation, a penile substitutionary, our punishment. Jesus went there in our place. This is the culmination of grace and truth. That through the upholding of God's righteousness and going to the cross, Jesus is able to give us grace upon grace, upon grace, upon grace. You see, it isn't just a fresh start. It isn't just you get a second chance and you can be forgiven and then you get sent out on your way to do good if you can. Right? The gospel isn't just the ABCs of Christianity. I don't know who said that originally, but it is the A through Z of Christianity. We must continue to come back to this grace that he has given us all throughout our life as we walk with him, as we move toward becoming more and more like him. This is what we continue to receive. So some of you have not yet become a Christian because you're not sure you can live the life. You're not sure you can be a good person. John says, you've missed it. God didn't reveal himself as a second chance giver. He revealed himself as a death reviver, as a savior, as a Messiah who comes to a people who are unable to do anything on their own, a people who are not seeking him, not doing pretty good and just need a little boost over the edge, but are dead. Ephesians 2, Romans 3, Romans 6. And all who would turn to him and see him and in him see a righteousness that immediately makes them aware, makes us aware that, man, we have nothing to offer a holy God. We have no hope standing before him. And seeing that glory leads us to then see him as the glorious Savior. He is the embodiment of righteousness, which comes with it judgment, because there is truth there. You have to know what God's standard is in order to receive his good gift of grace. Because if you just say, hey, God forgives, he loves everybody. No, you've cheapened his grace. Bonhoeffer says that's cheap grace. But when you see that he, he absolutely does care about our morality, our standard of righteousness, he absolutely does. And that's why he sent Jesus to uphold that. And then he scandalously, incredibly gives us grace upon grace. Those of us who come to him, those of us who have the scales fallen off our eyes, we get to see his glory and his glory is full of grace and truth. My goodness. I hope that if you're here and you are not yet a born-again believer of Jesus Christ, that you will let yourself hear these words, see them in the pages of Scripture, and know that God sent Jesus to make himself known, to make the world aware of who he is. And in that, we see the righteousness upheld, and we see the incredible graciousness, the incredible generosity of our God saying, all who would come to me, and I'll forgive you. And it's not about, I'll forgive you as long as you do better. No, I'll forgive you, and I'll, 
and I'll keep forgiving you. I'll give you the, the grace not just to get over the bar the first time, but to rise above the bar, to live in a way that you're no longer condemned, to live in a freedom that the, your sin no longer defines you. It's not that you're perfect. It's not that you won't sin anymore, but you are held by him. You are defined by him. You are loved by him. You are adopted by him. You are unconditionally welcomed by him. Why? Because the conditions aren't on you. Jesus took them on himself. And he upheld God's righteousness and full grace and truth. So, man, that's where you've got to start. Have you been changed by this? Have you met Jesus in that way? If not, that's your message. Come, come. For the rest of us who have been born of God, I'll ask us this. Do we look like him? Are we being transformed into his image And with that means we should also be a people full of grace and truth. Sinners love to be around Jesus. Do you know that? Do sinners generally love to be around Christians today? Not usually, right? Why is that? Because we're not always good at grace. Or... They don't know we're Christians because we're too heavy on grace. We never talk about the truth. So we need to correct ourselves. We need to think about this again. We'll read this quote again. Truth without grace crushes people and ceases to be truth. Grace without truth deceives people and ceases to be grace. Truth without grace degenerates into judgmental legalism. I want you to begin to see yourself. Where are you more inclined to lean? Grace without truth degenerates into deceitful tolerance. Truth hates sin. Grace loves the sinner. So we need to examine and correct ourselves, And this gospel is gonna give us a lot of opportunities to do so as we see Jesus engage people. But we who are truth-oriented, Alcorn would say, we need to go out of our way to affirm grace. And we who are <coughs> grace-oriented, we need to go out of our way to affirm truth. Let's become more like him. Again, you don't know him, and that's your first step. Come and receive him. You don't earn salvation by embodying grace and truth that Jesus did that for us. But you receive salvation by receiving great Jesus as the embodiment of grace and truth, the, the one who could save you. And then we get the privilege of becoming more and more like him, becoming the salt and light to the world, proclaiming the good, the good news of the gospel of grace and truth. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you approached us with with such love, such indescribable love. That you are not just holding on to a stash or not just in possession of a little bit of grace and truth. And it's it's here while supplies last, but rather you're full of it. That your mercies are new every morning. So I pray that that would wash over your people who are here and are burdened by their struggle with sin to the point that they have withheld themselves from you because they have believed the lie that you were displeased with them because of their performance. I pray that this grace would wash over them this morning and they would be able to just receive your love. 
for those of us who aren't really comfortable with you calling out sin in us or other people, would you help us to see your goodness in that? That it's unkind to let the world drift toward a cliff without doing all that we can to tell them that it's coming. That our sin leads to our death. Us to become a people who embody grace and truth. Help us to become a people who are overwhelmed with gratitude that you, our Savior, is full of grace and truth. And may that reign throughout this room for those with addiction, for those with guilt, for those with depression, those with self-condemnation. Blow us away, Jesus. Reveal yourself to us.